Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Akar and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. As litigators, we're always looking for tips that will give us the advantage in the courtroom, at our jobs, and in life. And in fact, that's what this show is all about. The whole law school experience teaches us that being smart and hardworking will lead to success. But my guest today firmly believes, and I think life experience confirms, that our network actually is the unfair advantage that we can have in life. And my guest today on today's show is Jordan Harbinger. Once referred to as the Larry King of podcasting, Jordan is a Wall Street lawyer turned interview talk show host and a communications and social dynamics expert. He has hosted a top 50 iTunes podcast for over 14 years and receives over 11 million downloads per month, making the Jordan Harbinger Show one of the most popular podcasts in the world. On his show, he deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth and shares their strategies, perspectives, and practical insights with the rest of us. Jordan, so pleased to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, your podcast seems to break all of the rules that I've heard about, you know, from podcasting gurus who say you have to have a real narrow niche. And from my research on on your show, your topics seem to vary widely, like episodes such as uh, discussion of the narco cartels, the science of pain, which I really thought was really interesting. Why do you think your show is so successful? Well, I did start off with a narrow niche 15 years ago. And as I sort of built a reputation as an interviewer and as a host, I was able to branch out a little bit each, let's say each year or every few years. And I started to experiment with wider variety of guests, you know, going from like, okay, this one's about body language, but I kind of wanted to do this one with the drug smuggler because it was going to be really interesting. And the audience would say, you know what? That was really good. More like that even though we come to you for this, we'll stay with you for that. And that was really interesting to me because yes, you're supposed to stay in this niche according to all the gurus, but at the same time, I'd built enough trust or cachet or whatever you want to call it with my listener base that it became okay for me to do whatever I was interested in slowly and over time. And that that's worked out quite well. Now, I'm not saying everybody who listens to all the drug smuggler episodes is also listening to all the neuroscience episodes. That's <laughs> fine. There's plenty of people not doing that. But at the same time, you did, you did it yourself. There are plenty of people who go, huh, well, if Jordan's interested in it, there's a, you know, 80% chance I'll be into it. Why don't I give it a shot? That's not built necessarily overnight. And I, I realize that this is something that doesn't always work well in podcasting especially because there's so much variety out there. You know, if you're watching, and and rest in peace, if you're watching Larry King Live, you didn't have a heck of a lot of options at 10 p.m. or whenever his show was on CNN, right, live. So you watched when there were animals crawling around and when he was interviewing, I don't know, Yasser Arafat, right? (laughs) And you maybe turned it off or you paid less attention, but that's what was on TV and you didn't have a whole lot of options. That's not true with podcasting. So you have to be quite careful 
when you go, oh, I'm just gonna do a variety talk show because I'm such an interesting guy and a great interviewer or whatever you wanna say about yourself, you can pat yourself on the back all you want, but everybody else can sort of change the channel real easily, so to speak. And so I'm really careful to still stay in what I would call the niche of learning and education. So while I might have a drug smuggler on, he's still giving us an inside look into something esoteric. The neuroscience thing, you're still learning about how pain works. So it's for curious minds that want to learn how something works and not just get a basic overview. And that tend, while that's not a niche or a genre, it is a style. And I think I still center around that. You know, I don't go into political division, drama, celebrity news. I won't ever delve into that stuff. And that's because it's outside. There's just frankly not much to learn about yourself or the world by engaging in that kind of small minded, I'll just call it nonsense because it's nonsense, right? Sure. So sure. that to me is why I'm able to expand outward, but it's not just, oh, I'll just do whatever I want today and that's fine because I got a great audience. You know, I try to still be respectful. There are guidelines of things that I do when I select a topic, such as, is the audience going to learn something? Are they going to feel this is valuable for their time? I look at it like being a lawyer, right? I'm an advocate for the audience. And so I can't waste a bunch of their time because that's against my, let's call it fiduciary duty, for lack of a better term. I can't sit there and run up the clock and say, well, I just needed some place to put my McDonald's ads, right? I, I need <laughs> to do something that is going to be of value for them because you don't get a ton of, especially in this day and age, you don't get a ton of, well, that episode was kind of not my thing before people say, I'm just not going to listen to this guy anymore. So you have to be right. very careful. It's an attention economy. That makes sense. And you mentioned being a lawyer and I know you were on uh, Wall Street for a little while focusing on real estate finance and mortgage-backed securities. And right right before the great recession hit. So I mean, what happened there? I mean, obviously, I mean, and, and I was affected by the great recession as well. Um, so that, that was a, I guess, bad timing to be in the mortgage backed securities business. Yeah. It wasn't a great time, but it worked out really well for me. I will say, because if it had been total boom and nonstop work and 60 hour work weeks, I would have quit podcasting because I was already podcasting back then, right? Since 2006 I would have gone, I don't have time for this. And then when I got my job offer, or I should say informal job offer with Sirius XM where I was moonlighting while I was working on Wall Street, I wouldn't have had time to run up to Times Square on Friday nights at 6 p.m., 7 p.m., whatever it was. They would have had me in the office till 11, six, seven nights a week since we didn't have a whole lot going on. And then they said, well, this might be a situation in which we have to lay some people off. I kind of ran to HR and was like, so is there a deal? You know, because they were saying, hey, well, you know, we'll pay you full salary and benefits, but you have to go on the job hunt and, I, and, and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, how do I sign up for this? Everybody else was panicking. I was like, how do I sign up for the thing where you keep paying me, but I don't show up? And they were like, great. You're, you, do you have something else lined up? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. And they're like, well, you, you should probably get something else lined up. And what I didn't want to say was I'm doing radio and, uh, you know, everyone knows about it, but you. <laughs> so... Like my, the partners in my department were cool with it, but they were like, D you might not want to let HR know you have another job <laughs> because they might not keep, they might not want to keep paying you if you have another job. Sure. And, and how did you end up with that talk show job? Is, was it somebody who was mentoring you or part of your networking? How did, how did you end up there? 
Yeah, what happened was I was doing the podcast for a while. I thought this is pretty good, pretty fun. I really like it. I got an, a, a friend of a friend ended up with a guest spot on Sirius XM Satellite Radio on, on a show that he'd gotten booked on by a producer. He was like a, a liquor guy. And he drove up from Virginia and he did it. And they said, oh, we got to have this guy back. And they offered to have him back. And he said, I'm not going to drive from Virginia to D.C. Or sorry, from uh, Virginia to New York, my bad, to do this. And then they they... He just said, you should have these other guys on. They're interesting. And he sort of threw it to us. And from there, we took that guest spot, showed up, did a reasonable job. And they said, you, you know, this is pretty good for guys who'd never been on the radio. And I said, yeah, you know, we, we, we love the radio. They invited us back. We came back. The station manager happened to be listening because he thought the topic was interesting. And he goes, wow, this is really good. This is like a really good topic. You guys should come back again. And I went up to his office before leaving the building and said, hey, you know, I don't know if you listen to podcasts. It's probably not considered real to radio guys, but here's a card with the URL. And he goes, I, I, I check out podcasts, you know, whatever. So I, I came back a couple of weeks later and with an email and I said, hey, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that podcast. And he goes, I did. Why don't you come back on Tuesday? I know you're going back on the radio show. Why don't you come to my office? So we went on, back on the radio show again because we had worked out how we were going to get back on this radio show, right? We sort of left like a cliffhanger. And I walked to the office and I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm excited that you listen to the show. Tell me what you think I can do. And he said, you should have your own hour because you're, you're good at this. You know, you, you know what you're talking about. You've already got practice from doing your podcast in the basement. You just have to learn professional equipment. And that was a lot of fun. And so I, that, that was really what it was. It was like, one part networking, one part tenacity and follow-up, right? Tenacious follow-up, three parts execution. And there was a part of luck in there that just happened to be the station manager wanted to check us out when we were there. And then he happened to be into podcasts. And then when we did follow up, he happened to have listened to the show, you know, and, and liked it. So there was a lot of like honing your skill, working your network, getting a little bit lucky, and then being quite persistent in the middle, in, in between all that. Sure. And it's important to put yourself in, in the position where people see you and give you the opportunity. And one of the things that, that I've seen is I know you do a lot of speaking engagement and you're on a lot of yeah. various podcasts. One talk in particular that I saw that really spoke to me was you talk, you spoke a few years um, to a group at Google and you were telling a story about uh, your law firm mentor who was assigned to you, but really didn't want to be assigned to you, didn't really want to mentor you. But he was a rainmaker and he really used his network to be a rainmaker and that sort of thing. And wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, about Dave. Yeah, Dave, he hired me and was like never in the office. And I thought, what is this guy doing where he just doesn't have to do anything? You know, it's really something, you know, go, go Dave. And <laughs> I caught him in the office a couple of times and I was like, what are you doing? You know, maybe, maybe if he's working from home, that's something I need to do because I felt like, oh, they're going to fire me when they find out I'm a dummy right at, and then I don't belong here. And so I really wanted to figure out how to work from home. And that's what I assumed Dave was doing. So I said, Hey, you know, can I, can you tell me what's going on? How do you end up working from home so much? And he was like, well, I'm not really working from home. And that's when he clarified that he was out generating business for the firm. And it had never really occurred to me that he was out generating business for the firm, if that makes sense, right? I just assumed he was working from home because what could you possibly be doing outside? 
And that's when he was like, well, you know, our clients, if they're playing squash or they're cycling or they're running or doing jujitsu, like I'm kind of, I, I should be there with them. And I was, I was thinking, yeah, maybe you should, but don't you have work to do? And he's like, listen, I'll bill hours, but I'm not worried about getting to 2000 billable hours or whatever it was to get my bonus. I need to generate business for the firm because if I generate one deal a quarter and he was generating way more than that, I assume if I deal, if I generate one deal a quarter, I'm already getting, I think they get whatever X percent of that deal. And he goes, your billable hours bonus is going to be like X, Y, Z, right? It's going to be this much. But if you bring in a deal every quarter, it's going to be this much times three, you know? And he goes, so if I, if I just, focus, basically what it had worked out to is that he was more valuable cycling, doing jujitsu, playing golf, going to charity events and playing squash and, and running than he would ever, he would have had to bill like 5,000 hours a year, right? Which is impossible in order to generate the type of money that he was generating just by having clients be like, you know what? I, I know, like, and trust you. Here's the Lehman brothers thing that we're working on. And that would generate him a ton of money because he gets a percentage of all the fees, right? So he would still run the deal, but it was like, he was really out there, like you said, rainmaking, and none of the other partners seemed to really have any idea how that was done. I, I shouldn't say none. Many of them slash most of them, they were always, always in the office, and I'm sure they build a lot of hours. But I will say this, when the firm started to go under, when we started to sense that the winds were shifting, winds were changing, he, walked out and walked into another firm and I saw him all the time because it happened to be in the same building where Sirius XM satellite radio was where I was working and he'd be like, hey, don't I know you from, uh, and I'm like, yeah, you do. And he's like, oh, are you also at the, this firm? And I was like, no, I'm on Sirius XM satellite radio. And he's like, oh, good for you, right? So it was kind of funny to see him in the elevator at that firm, but all the other partners that I knew, almost all, they they retired early. And so what that told me was, he had a smorgasbord of offers because he had a book of business and everybody else just had this sort of siloed knowledge, maybe even specific to the firm that was like, here's how we handle real estate, mortgage-backed security, derivative products. And it's like, well, not a whole lot of demand for you guys now. Right. They're service so, partners. Right. Right. And so this guy, he went, well, I can bring my investment bank clients pretty much anywhere because those investment bankers are just going to make new products. Yeah. And- the question that I have is they don't teach any of this in law school at all. They just, they teach no. you about the law. They, they tell you, you know, you're going to, you know, work your butt off. You're going to do all this stuff. You're going to get a job and then you're just going to bill hours. And uh, did I read somewhere that you actually taught a course at your law school on networking? I did. It wasn't like a formal networking 101 sign up here for an elective. It was, I went to, I went to career services and I said, hey, I've been working on this networking stuff and they were all big on that, right? But their version of networking was come to a mock interview that's gonna be held in the hallway because we don't have enough organ, like the, the clipboard that people were signing up with is missing. And it's gonna be five minutes long and they would go, hi, why do you wanna work here? Okay, uh, yeah, your answers are fine, you're fine. And I'm like, that's, I'm not prepared for this. Or they'd go, you should have more notes when you come in. And I'm like, how do I get those? And they're like, just Google the law firm and the person you're talking to. I'm like, really? And that's it? Whereas my stuff was like, go on LinkedIn, find out their personal interests. Do you have anything in common with them? If someone's really into squash and played varsity rugby in college, did you play varsity rugby in college? Start talking about that. 
you know, figure out what you can riff on. If they take you out to lunch, don't act like you don't have a personality because you don't want to offend anyone. It's better to have these topics lined up, talk about them, get them talking about themselves. Like I had all these advanced like body language and rapport generation stuff. Sure. And career services was like show up with a business card. You know, it was just kind of like <laughs> 1968 called and wanted their networking tips back. And <laughs> so they were like, oh, well, why don't you teach this to people? And I said, sure. So they, uh, they sent out an email and they said, well, you have six signups. And of course, four people showed up and it was all women. And I thought, that's weird. And later on, it became really obvious. All the guys th said, I don't need to network. I'm an amazing person and I'm so great because that's what law school was like at Michigan anyway. And the women were like, this is a boys club and I'm going even deeper into the cave and I need all the tips I can get to network with other women. And I thought, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So here's this dude teaching a bunch of women how to network with other women and men for that matter. But the room was always locked. It was always super hot. There's no air conditioning in the lawyers club at Michigan. So I said, you know what, if it's just going to be you, why don't we go to a bar and, or a restaurant or a coffee shop where it's not 75 degrees in the shade, you know, or 85 degrees, I should say in the room. And they said, yeah, great. So we would go to these different bars and it would be kind of quiet in the back room of a restaurant. And I would start giving my talks. And eventually a lot of them started bringing their friends. And then guys would say, how come you're with 11 women every day on Tuesday and Thursday? What are you doing? <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm teaching a networking class. And they're like, well, maybe I need to learn how to network. So these guys started showing up and I started to have to record my talks because the guys would come in and go, wait, 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 catch me up on everything. And I'm like, gosh, you know, that doesn't work when it's a real class, but when it's sort of like a hobby club thing, you don't have much of a choice. So I was recording them and I would say, here's a CD, go play this CD and then come back next week and you can ask questions because you will have heard the intro stuff that you missed. So I started to do that and that's when people started to say, hey, that CD was awesome. I need like 12 because I gave one to my brother and my roommate. And, and I'm like, I only have, I have three. Go get the CD back. Right. So then I started charging for the CDs and then guys would say, oh, good. I need five now. I need, I need an order of this. And I was spending my Friday nights burning CDs. Oh, you know, I was not gonna, I'm a, it was good money, but I wasn't going to get rich off of it, you know, especially when I was looking at that lawyer money. So that's when I was like, how do I put an MP3 on the Internet, which wasn't a thing you could do in 2006 very easily. And that was how I got the idea to start the podcast because I was teaching these networking classes. They started to become almost virally popular in person. And I started, I wanted to distribute the audio in Ann Arbor. And then when I started to put the files up online and I saw the downloads from Ann Arbor, like dozens, and I thought there people are sharing this. And then I saw downloads from South Africa, Canada, Germany. I was like, what is going on? How are these people finding this? And it was because of Google and, you know, the, the iTunes uh, craze at the time where podcasts were new. And then it was, I said, Who, who's listening to this if you're not in Ann Arbor, Michigan? And people started emailing me from all over the world. And I thought, this is a medium that has legs, right? Remember, YouTube didn't exist. Twitter didn't exist. Facebook didn't exist. So this was like my first sort of, holy crap, this, there's, there's power in this internet thing to influence far and wide. And then... I had people from California saying, why don't you consult? And I said, I don't know what that means. And they'd say, it means I give you five grand and you teach my sales team what you're talking about. And that's, that's how the business was born. But it, yeah, it started as me being like, hey, career services, you haven't had to get a job since 1978. Why don't <laughs> I handle this? You know, why don't I give some tips here? Because I had job offers coming out of my, you know what, at that point.
Right. And so do you miss it at all? I mean, now you obviously have the ability to to network, probably to bring in a lot of business just to following your own advice. Yeah. Did you ever think about the fact that if you had known all of this before and and become a lawyer and then kind of got hit with the, you know, the recession, would you ever want to go back and, and practice? Not really, because I wasn't a good fit for that type of environment. I did find the firm that I was at was really kind of cool and laid back. You know, it was, it was a white shoe firm, but everybody was like an Italian from Brooklyn yelling in the hallway. And I kind of, I dug that, right. It was kind of OG. But I, before that I had worked at Linklaters, which is this British law firm, which I found to be modern and okay, but it's really hard to sh British lawyers, man, nice guys, but, but holy cow, there's a, there's a certain air in there that you just can't. You can't, you can't let there's, it's stuffy. I'll just leave it at that. And I was not a good sure. fit for that. Go figure. Right. You know, and I would say things like, what about this and that and the other thing? And then I'd get somebody, the partner would call me in. Here's an example. I, I was in the elevator leaving one Friday night when I was stationed in London and one of the partners was in there and he said, oh, do you have plans for the weekend? And I said, yeah, I'm going to go check out this, that, and the other thing. And what, you know, what about you? And he said, oh, I've got a fishing cabin. And he kind of got quiet and he walked out. And then on Monday, I come in and one of the partners who's managing me is like, can you come here for a second? I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, did you ask Mr. Crawford what his plans were for the weekend? And I said, yeah, I mean, he asked me what I was doing. I asked him what he was doing. And they said, yeah, that man has worked very hard to get where he is. And I said, I'm sure that he has. Uh, yeah. And, and they're like, you can't talk to him informally like that. And I thought, why the F not people? He asked me what I was doing and now I can't answer in a, with a reciprocal. Did he really get so offended by that? He sent you an email and I thought I am on Mars right now where what I did was impolite. I cannot survive in this environment. And I just thought this is unbelievable. And I'm already rough around the edges, you know, and I, it was just like, how am I going to adapt to this? And, and better yet, do I need to adapt to this? Because this is frankly, it's a little ridiculous, you know, it's a little silly. And so I just kind of bugged out of there. They gave me what's called a cold offer. And then they said it wasn't a cold offer. And then I leveraged it to get a better offer and I didn't go work there. So that was a very strange experience. And I thought I can't have a lot of these and that shouldn't have happened. But also, you know, 15 years later, I'm going, no, that was weird. That wasn't a me thing. That was a British lawyer weirdo thing and, and not a good environment for me. And I just thought that was kind of a funny example because on what planet is it impolite to ask somebody what they're doing over the weekend after they ask you that same question? Like, I don't care if it's the oh. queen of, Eng who is, who is this person? Is it the queen of England? What, what on earth did <laughs> I do wrong there? I still don't understand. And I still think it's just totally obscenely ridiculous. Only at a law firm, right? Um, Only so at a law firm. And Linklater's was the cool one, right? The other ones were like more stuffy. Guys were like, wow, you have pink in here. This is crazy. You, you can go get drinks during the day. And I'm like, where do you, work. It, it sounds like a cloister. Well, l let's give some practical tips for folks who are in that environment, in the law firm environment. So you talk a lot about mindset and some of the talks that, that I've seen you uh, talk about, you know, being generous, giving. What are some of the, the mindset tips that you would have just to start out? One of the top tips that I give people is because a lot of people go, oh, where do I start? I don't have time for this. I would say every morning, 
go to the bottom of your text messages on your phone. That's where those old threads are, like really old, where you haven't talked to that person in four years, and shoot them a text. I've got a script on my website for this, but it's essentially something like, hey, long time no speak, I'm actually trying to do a better job of keeping in touch with old friends or people from the past. I'm working at so-and-so, I've got a kid now, I'm in New York, what's new with you? And no rush on the reply, I know it's been a long time and everybody's busy. And most people will reply, but at like maybe one-third or one-fourth will not. Don't, shake, don't sweat it, just shake the rust off, that's the whole point of this exercise. And you'll find that a lot of people from your past are actually quite glad to hear from you. And this exercise is great because one, you will start to see opportunities come in, you'll start to reconnect with people from your past, but also you'll realize that all those thoughts you had about it, it's gonna be, seem weird if I say hi to somebody, it's gonna seem weird if I come out with this and that and the other, you're gonna find that that's just not the case. You know, people think, oh, they're gonna think I'm a weirdo or I've joined a cult or an MLM. Some of that might happen, but honestly, if you don't have an agenda other than reestablishing contact, it starts to become really normal and normalized and you realize that it's kind of fun to keep in touch with people. And so I recommend people do that so that they don't have this daunting task of like, oh, I've got to go to mixers and drive across town and park. No, those things are almost universally useless. Just reinvigorate those weak and dormant ties that you already have. And on that same note, another exercise that I have, I call layoff lifelines, which is imagine you get laid off from your job today. Who are the 10 or 15 people that you would contact to solicit their advice on what to do next? So these are your important, but also, again, still dormant ties, right? This might be like your old boss, some colleagues from a previous firm, classmates that helped you out, your advisor back in college, who knows, depending on how far removed you are from those situations. Even if it's been five or 10 years, it doesn't matter. Make a list of those people and then reach out to them now when you don't have an agenda or you need anything specifically, right? It's less awkward because again, you're agenda free here and it gets momentum going. It ends the cycle of procrastination because look, I know you got a hundred things to do. You know what 99 of them are, but outreach isn't one of them. It'll help you kick off the rust, but you'll be so surprised at about how nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 of those people are so just thrilled to hear from you that you realize that reaching out to people is fun and not a weird thing where you feel awkward the whole time. The reason people feel a lot of awkwardness about networking is because one, we know a lot of people that do it badly, that are like the used car salesman, throw a business card in someone's face type thing. Those people are irritating. We're not going to become like that. You know, or they think, oh, but last time I did this, it was so weird. Well, you did it because you had gotten laid off or fired or you needed something. So you said, hey, how about, those New York Mets, huh? Do you have a job I can have? And, and that's awkward because you know you did it wrong. If you're reaching out just to reconnect with somebody and because you haven't done a great job of keeping in touch and then they're happy to hear from you, you don't then drop the bomb on them that you need something, right? You just keep this sort of relationship going by contacting them once every six or 12 months and you keep things going. Now that's a way to do it where it doesn't feel weird, it doesn't feel awkward, it feels like socializing and fun. And, and socializing through text message or phone at least, right? You don't have to drive, you don't have to park. And then in two years, if you do get laid off, you can reach out to these same people and it's not awkward because no one in their right mind is gonna think, ah, he contacted me two or three years ago just to butter me up for this very moment, right? That's, that's not really what's going on. 
it's when you have an agenda that you feel that little bit of shame with your tail between your legs and, and like you, you feel embarrassed and as well, you should, you know, if you, if you dig the well before you get thirsty, there's nothing to worry about. You mentioned in-person uh, events where you're kind of, you know, people throw business cards at, at each other. What, what other sort of mistakes do you see professionals like lawyers making when they attempt to build their network? Generally, it's not, as I mentioned sort of before, not digging the well before you get thirsty, right? It's, hey, uh, I'm reaching out because I want to see if you have any work that you might have in the litigation department. It's like, why Why would I have just be looking for a litigator now? You want to be top of mind when they need you, not you reaching out to them and hoping the timing is perfect. I mean, what are the odds that you reach out to somebody and they're like, you know what's funny? I just got served this morning and don't have an attorney. Come on. You want them to reach out to you and go, hey, I know we just talked a couple months ago about uh, poodles, but I just got this summons in the mail and I don't have a lawyer. Do you know anyone or can you help me with this? You know, that's the kind of reputation and relationship you want with these people. Not think of me when you're buying your next used vehicle, right? You want people to reach out to you for advice. You want people to reach out to you for counsel because they know, like, and trust you. You don't have to, it's like timing the market. It never really works. You want people to think of you when they need a lawyer you don't want to be throwing things out there as much as possible on your mailing list, hoping that you catch somebody who's desperate in that particular moment. That's not a winning strategy. Well, these have all been great tips and really appreciate you being on the show, Jordan. I know people want to reach out to you, are really interested in uh, maybe getting one of those CDs that you mentioned uh, for your net, uh, networking tips. Yes. Eight track laser disc or CD. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes. What's or, the best or, way for folks to find out more about you? Sure. So jordanharbinger.com is my website. If you listen to podcasts, of course, it's the Jordan Harbinger show, H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R. But I have a whole course with all of, it's a free course uh, with all of these tips on networking, drills, exercises, everything I spoke about here, and I think about 10 more. And that's at jordanharbinger.com slash course. And the, again, the course is free. You don't have to enter like your credit card or any of that nonsense. It just guides you through each of these drills. And if you're wanting to kick the rust off or get started networking in a way that's not sort of creepy and opportunistic, this is where you start, jordanharbinger.com slash course. But yeah, look, people interested in podcasts should definitely just check out the show. Excellent. Well, again, thank you uh, so much for taking the time today. It's been been a real pleasure having you on uh, and we'll be uh, listening for more information from you. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much, Dave. And now we're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Thank you to LexisNexis, creators of Lexis Plus, a legal research ecosystem that integrates legal research, practical guidance, and insightful legal analytics in a modern user interface. Visit LexisNexis.com forward slash Lexis Plus for more information. That's LexisNexis.com forward slash Lexis Plus. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis to the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunton Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome back to the show, Latasha. Hi, Dave. Thanks. It's great to be back. Wonderful. Well, I understand you're going to talk about deposition issues today. So what's your quick tip? So I wanted to talk about a few tips for preventing errors with deposition errata forms. And in most depositions, the deponent opts to read and sign the transcript. 
invoking Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30E. Now, this rule allows the witness to make changes in form or substance to his or her sworn testimony after the deposition has concluded. And while federal courts uniformly recognize Rule 30E as a powerful litigation tool, and because technically it allows for not only the repair of maybe incorrect testimony or typos, but it potentially could allow for the repair of damaging testimony that could potentially help overcome a summary judgment motion. So while courts uniformly recognize the rule, they have diverging interpretations of what the rule's phrase and form or substance means. So I wanted to talk a bit about that today and provide some tips on how litigators can prevent errors with deposition errata forms. So the first tip is, of course, know the rules of the jurisdiction in which your case is pending. Now, the extent of the changes that a witness can make to their errata form, it depends largely on the jurisdiction in which the case is pending. And while today I'm primarily speaking about Rule 30E, of course, if you are operating in a state court, it is just as important to know if and how the rules in that jurisdiction may differ from Rule 30E. And there are a you know, most states have adopted rules that are equivalent to Rule 30E, uh, but there are still a handful that have not. So the first tip, of course, is know the rules of the jurisdiction in which your case is pending and whether or not it does allow the witness to make changes to the, errata, to the deposition testimony with an errata form or sheet. The second tip is really just understanding that the majority of courts interpret Rule 30E to allow substantive changes But there, of course, are limits to what can be done, and that is really just to prevent abuse. So what we have seen is that courts typically have three schools of thought on errata forms. There is the traditional approach, which is where a court allows a witness to include almost any change in his or her errata form, so long as it meets the procedural requirements of the rule. So maybe, for example, that could be changing a no answer to a yes answer. And this is generally the approach that the majority of courts have. The modern approach allows um, changes noted on the errata sheet to be limited to correction of transcription errors only. And so this is thought to prevent someone from altering testimony that was said under oath, which, again, is one of the most important reasons why you should make sure to prepare your witnesses for deposition and hopefully put them in a position to provide artful and thoughtful responses in advance. So if you are in a court that takes a modern approach to errata sheets, um, you, you don't have to worry about the inability to not be able to correct that testimony. And then the third approach that some courts take is really just a case-by-case approach. This is probably the most common in state courts, and this is where the courts consider both the nature and the timing of the changes to the errata sheets. So, for example, maybe the court would reject a change that would materially contradict court testimony or deposition testimony if it's really close to trial. Um, Of course, in federal court, you know, there's a timing that governs when the errata sheet has to be turned in, but a lot of state courts don't have those rules. So the second tip is understanding that the majority of courts interpret Rule 30E to allow changes, but what those substantive changes can be may be limited. 
And the third and final tip is really just making sure that substantive changes are corrected and clarifying. The reason for that is really because the original answers to the deposition, they will always remain a part of the record and it can always be used at trial. So while most courts do allow a witness to make substantive changes to a transcript with an errata form, a witness's ability to do so, it it is not unfettered. And the reason provided for making changes to errata sheets should, of course, explain why the change was made because the party taking the deposition has, of course, various avenues to challenge a witness's errata sheet if the reason for a change is unsatisfactory. So the third and final tip was substantive changes should be corrective and clarifying. And so just a brief recap, the tips to preventing errors with deposition errata forms is one, knowing the rules of the jurisdiction in which your case is pending. Two, understanding that the majority of courts interpret Rule 30E to allow substantive changes, but that is not without limits. And three, substantive changes should be corrective and clarifying because the original responses always remain a part of the record and the party taking the deposition can always challenge the errata sheet. So there are multiple schools of thought on the purpose of the deposition errata sheet. Some litigators believe a witness can use an errata sheet to correct typos and transcription errors, and that should be the only reason why they are used. Other litigators look at it as strategy that could allow a witness to correct not only transcription errors, but also to make substantive changes to his or her testimony that could help defeat a motion for summary judgment later down the line. Either way, given the importance of deposition errata sheets, In the litigation process, it is super important to know the permissible uses of the errata sheet, and it's equally important to use that to protect your witnesses and your case. Well, excellent tips, Latasha, and a great reminder to check your jurisdiction's rules on deposition errata sheets. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at our next litigation section event. So please make plans to join us at the ABA annual meeting in Chicago in August. To see the full schedule of litigation section events, go to ambar.org slash litigation annual. And if you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts, it's super helpful as well. Finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section, for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thanks, Rich, for all of your hard work. And thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.